that's how I knew that I wasn't a great fit for corporate America. If you can deal with working in corporate America, I think that's a great way to go. Entrepreneurship is so fraught with risk with uncertainty, with sometimes isolation, financial instability, that for those of us who are not just sitting on a pile of money, generational wealth, yet a really good idea to get oneself on a very good, solid financial standing. I'm there now, 11 years later, but those first, I'd say probably the first four years of running my business were very touch and go financially. Welcome to the Early Career Moves Podcast, the show that highlights remarkable BIPOC young professionals killing it on their career journeys. I'm your host, Priscilla Esquivel-Bolcha, Latinx career coach, corporate consultant, daughter of immigrants, and lover of breakfast tacos. Meet me for a coffee chat every Friday as we either dive into a special guest story or I'll share my own career gems. If you're a BIPOC professional feeling lost in your career or just need a dose of inspiration, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hey everyone, today we have a really special guest episode, Kanisha Grayson. She is the founder of The Art of Applying, a graduate admissions consulting firm that works with non-traditional applicants, helping them get into their dream grad schools with funding. If you were around for season one, Kanisha's business was a sponsor of our first few episodes. So really grateful for Kanisha's support and also her own mentorship in, in my life. Kanisha's story today is so good. I laughed so many times. Kanisha just cracks me up. She talks about what it was like to go to Harvard Business School and Harvard Kennedy School and then decide to not pursue the corporate route and to actually start her own online business from her laptop with a $10,000 grant that she won through Harvard. And so she grew that $10,000 seed investment into the business that she now runs today. She did grow her business to a million dollar business, but then in the episode, she talks about why she actually scaled it back a little bit. And it has to do with time freedom, with joy, and with just actually getting to enjoy life, right? And so Kanisha brings such a refreshing tone when it comes to talking about work, the role that work plays in our lives. And I just can't wait to hear what you think. Enjoy. Hey, before we head into today's episode, I want to encourage you to follow us on Instagram at ECM Podcast. Also head over to ecmpodcast.com where you can get freebies, read the latest ECM blog post, and sign up for our monthly newsletter. And if you or someone you know is looking for one-on-one career coaching, you can sign up to work with me on my website. Lastly, if you're a big fan and supporter of the show, please make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how we can reach other people. Okay, let's head into the show. Yeah, well, I hope by the time that this episode comes out that like the pandemic is a memory and not like an everyday still present part of our lives. I I really hope that's how it is. But we're still in it right now and waiting on my booster shot. What has been really fun for me and exciting for me these days is exploring and rediscovering my more artistic and creative side. But I'm the founder of The Art of Applying. I've had my business for 11 years, helping people all over the world get into top grad schools and get money to pay for it. I'm really proud of my company. It's been an 
a wonderful, amazing journey with lots of ups and downs. And I'm also a writer. I'm also a storyteller. And I haven't really put nearly as much time, money or attention towards developing myself as a writer and storyteller or sharing my writing Mm -hmm. or taking stand-up comedy classes, those kind of things, as I have to business um, and entrepreneurship. It's been extremely unbalanced. I would say to the point of like spending over $100,000 since business school after business school on like business coaching and business Mm -hmm. classes versus maybe... $1,500, maybe $2,000 over 11 years on writing classes, painting classes, creativity. So in this last uh, two months or so, I have been working through a book called The Artist's Way with my good friend from high school. And I'm just feeling this huge surge of creativity and Reappreciation. I know that's not really a word, but a reappreciation <laughs> for that other side of myself. So, what's been really fun for me is, as I mentioned earlier, just like journaling every day. And I'm not writing anything interesting, it's literally just taking out my mind to trash in the morning. Yeah. Um, but I do that basically every day. I just write long with my hand, uh, write in my notebook for three pages. I've been writing poetry just for fun, just sharing it like in WhatsApp with my friends. (laughs) I've been reading books about creativity. I just finished rereading the book Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love. I signed up for a course called New York Times Worthy Personal Essay Writing. And then I signed up for a different course that is how to write a tiny book. I've already written one book, a self-help book called Be Your Own Boyfriend that came out in 2013. Super proud of it. But that was eight years ago. And so it's time for my second book. And because I am feeling so committed and so diligent and so excited about rediscovering my creativity, the first draft of that tiny book will be done by the end of, of 2021. Wow. You're just on a roll. I feel on a roll. I feel so um, on fire with inspiration and excitement. And for anyone who's listening to this, that's like, why does this woman have like 17 jobs? <laughs> Understand that I have one job, which is being the founder and CEO of The Art of Applying. That is how I make money. I do not make money any other way. All the other stuff that I tell you about that I do, I have a podcast called Scale Your Joy, poetry, writing, all of that. None of that brings me money. It's some, it costs money. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, just know that I have one job and the rest of the things that I do for fun and because they bring me lots of joy and fulfillment. At what point did you realize, I actually really want to help people and have a career that impacts people's lives? So I first realized that like, oh, I actually want to be a prescriptive cheerleader and get paid to do it when I was in graduate school myself. So When I was in college, I went to Pomona College in California, a small private school, and I was helping older students with their graduate school applications. I myself was a humanities major. I studied Black studies. So I did a lot of classes in Black studies, Chicano studies, like critical race theory, feminism, a lot of like literature, art, music, that kind of stuff. And I was helping the older students with their grad school applications. I didn't even really understand what they would be studying in grad school, but I had applied to so many colleges and got into all the colleges I applied to. I had already 
in the past had to apply to go to the magnet middle school and the magnet high school in my city. So I knew how to fill out those applications. I grew up in in Austin, Texas, in a low income, high crime, primarily Mexican American neighborhood. And the local schools, our teachers cared a lot about us, but like everyone was on free lunch. Mm -hmm. Like we half the class was absent all the time as people was like, oh, we had to go back to Mexico because somebody died or whatever. Like it was just a very, it was an environment in which everyone, we were all doing our best, but like there was no sense of like possibility and opportunity beyond our small neighborhood. And so it was really important to me to like see like, is there a world outside of Dove Springs um, in Austin, Texas? And so Mm -hmm. school was that was that kind of opportunity for me to see a world outside of my neighborhood. I always had to apply to go to those schools. So anyway, I've been applying for stuff since I was in sixth grade, applying to go to different schools, helping other people apply, doing that all for free. And then was like, well, let me get myself into one of these fancy schools. So Mm -hmm. I got myself into Harvard Kennedy School to do my master's of public administration and Harvard Business School to do my master's of business administration. And while I was there, I tried really hard to fit into like the corporate mold because I was like, oh my goodness, I could make six figures. This is so exciting. And like, I can do what I really want to do on the side. So I did one My first summer internship for policy school, I did at Eli Lilly, the big pharmaceutical company. Mm -hmm. I was in their public policy office. It was 2000 and what year? It was 2007, no, 2008. And they were like, Senator Barack Obama. And I'm like, okay. And they're like, he's running for president and we don't know... (laughs) We don't know what's going to happen. Like, oh what if he actually wins? What We need to figure out where we fit in um, with his healthcare agenda. So I we need you to go to D.C. and talk to a lot of different racial health equity advocacy groups, as well as go talk to some lobbyists and help us understand where this guy stands on all these different issues, how we might fit into the president. If he becomes president, the presidential agenda, like we just, this is so interesting. What's going to happen? And I was like, let's see what's going to happen. This is, who is this guy? That was really fun that they were like, there's this guy. And I was like, what? (laughs) I think I have the year right. It's 2007 or 2008. And then my next summer internship was at Nestle. And I was doing marketing for Willy Wonka Candy, which sounds like wildly fun and cool. But for anyone who works in brand management, the, it's it's not like you're sitting there like coloring and making like cool <laughs> music videos all day. I don't know. You're looking at should Laffy Taffy be 25 cents or 27 cents? <laughs> that that was literally like one of my projects. And so I was just like, this is not for me. You weren't um, like energized by that at all. I was not. I my favorite parts of my favorite part of my job at Nestle. Well, a my coworkers were really diverse. My boss was Latina. My team was like we had an Asian American guy, a white woman, my Latina boss, me and another black woman who was also an MBA intern. So it was like very diverse. My favorite part besides just like being like, this is like sex in the city and I have to like wear business clothes every day was (laughs) probably like the brainstorming meetings that they let me lead. I had a lot of fun doing that. We were trying to come up with a alternative term for king size 
because childhood obesity is an, a problem. But if you remember, that was actually uh, First Lady Michelle Obama's yeah. very important part. And so that was that guy, Barack Obama, did become the president. And so we also needed to move away from things that were promoting or contributing to possibly to childhood obesity. So they were like, well, let's come up with a term that makes it clear that you should be sharing whatever this huge piece of candy is. So they let me um, lead a brainstorming session that included people all the way from the warehouse, all the way up to management. And I had a ton of fun doing that. And I just want to say that like my bosses and the companies overall, Eli Lilly and Nestle, they treated me well. They paid me well. They had such good established programs for MBAs. It was just, to me, that was the sign that I really didn't belong there. The fact that they did pay well, the fact that they did treat me so well, they treated the other interns well, that I still felt this feeling of like, this isn't for me. That's how I knew that I wasn't a great fit for corporate America. I really think that if you can... If you can deal with working in corporate America, I think that's a great way to go. It's entrepreneurship is so fraught with risk, with uncertainty, with sometimes isolation, financial instability, that for those of us who are not just sitting on a pile of money, generational wealth yet, a really good idea to get oneself on a very good, solid financial standing. I'm there now, 11 years later, but those first, I'd say probably the first four years of running my business were very touch and go financially. Yeah. Yeah. Was that a hard decision to make to say, I'm at HBS, I'm at literally the best business school in the world, and I'm still not really interested in taking any of these paths, and I'm just going to figure it out? It was not hard at all. <laughs> it was not a hard decision really? to make at all. I think my, it, but the thing is with, with entrepreneurs who go into it full time, it's very similar, I would say, to also people who go into creative careers full time. You have to be a, you have to be a certain degree of naive and a certain degree of foolish and a certain degree of wildly optimistic <laughs> to even try. Because if you really look at the stats of how many businesses fail within the first five years and then within with the first 10 years, how many people move to LA and try and make it in the entertainment industry and how very few do, you would never even try if you actually sat down and looked at the stats mm -hmm. and did crunch the numbers, you wouldn't even try. So it actually takes a certain degree of naivete and folly and like wild hearted belief in oneself, whether that belief is backed up by any results or not to go for it. And for me, the reason why I was so brazen is one, I had never really made a lot of money. I went from college where you're just making college intern money straight to policy school at the Kennedy School. I, I lived a year in Ghana volunteering. So my income was whatever the very generous fellowship I received, but it was not earned money. It was, here's $25,000 to live off of. And I, I was a queen on 25K in Sub-Saharan Africa, but I had never had a full-time job. I always say I never got tamed. I never knew what it was like to make $50,000, $60,000. So I didn't know what I was missing. Secondly, I knew how bad I felt sitting in a cubicle in front of the computer. It's so crazy because I sit in front of a computer all day. That's what I do. I've sat in front of a computer all day for 11 years. But it's um, different, so right? It like is really different when I can 
wear what I want, be professional and have tact, but say what I want. I am my full self. And I am one of those people who the Kanisha that you see on this podcast is the same Kanisha that you get when you are on her team, same Kanisha you get when you're her client, same Kanisha you get at happy hour. Like clearly I'm not going to be talking about like my like sexual escapades with clients, (laughs) right? So I have boundaries, but what I don't have is a mask. And I really felt like it felt to me like to, I think it is actually better now, but 11 years ago, 12, 13 years ago, it felt to me that in order to ascend the corporate ranks, I had to wear a mask. I There were so many meetings I sat in where people just gave ridiculously ludicrous ideas. But because they were higher up in the organization than me, I was expected to not say, ma'am, we cannot name the candy, the flying dingalings. Like that was a real <laughs> suggestion. And I'm like, do you know what that means? You cannot name candy that. At, at least not, <laughs> at least and if, unless you're trying to get in a real store, you can't name it that. And so the hierarchy I couldn't deal with. I could not deal with having a day full Literally from nine in the morning to 5 p.m., a day full of meetings. I was I was confused. When am I supposed to actually do my job? I didn't like the fact that it was seen as strange or disrespectful to speak directly to the CEO. Excuse me, are they a god? Like, <laughs> what is happening? And I don't I really don't think that's how it is because millennials won't stand for that, right? We're now millennials, we are pushing 40. We've been in corporate America, those of us who took that path at this point, anywhere from three to five to 10 years. So we're actually reshaping corporate America. We are the new leaders in corporate America. So we bring more of that open heartedness, more of those progressive ideals. But back then, I I felt allergic to the lifestyle of corporate America. I remember on Fridays, I would come home and just collapse. I would be so tired. So this is not some rant that is like anti-corporate America. It's more my heart-centered sharing around why it wasn't hard for me to say no to that because it didn't look like some amazing path to me. It felt like it it was like, that's where my dreams are going to die. I also had two of my professors do an intervention that wasn't needed on me. Uh, They didn't even know that they both did it. So my marketing professor was one of those superstar professors at HBS. Like everybody wants to be in her class, whatever. And I was in her office hours and she was like, Kanisha, I don't know what you're planning on doing after school, but I really, please don't go into banking or consulting. I really don't think it's the right fit for you. And I was like, oh, I'm not planning on it. And she was like, (laughs) okay, you just, you really remind me of my younger son. And he's just like a very sensitive spirit. And I just do not think that's where you'll thrive. And I was like, ma'am, do not worry. Like I, A, I can't pass those case interviews. And B, I did not do well in finance, one or two. So don't worry about it. And then my other professor of authentic leadership development, he was a strategy professor, but he wasn't my strategy professor. I took an elective with him and he was like, in his office hours, he was like, Kanisha, do not go into consulting. And I was like, I'm not. Why is everyone telling me not to go into consulting? And he was just like, it's where your dreams will die. And he wasn't saying everyone's dreams die, but he was like, your dreams of making your kind of mark on the world being Kanisha, like that's, 
they're they don't want Kanisha. <laughs> so like not saying they don't want black women or women of color, whatever, but they're not looking for outspoken people who want to inspire people like, no, that's not what that's not the job. And I didn't need them to tell me that, but I'm just letting you know that there were a lot of forces coming together to where, to me, the scarier thing for me would be to build up a lifestyle that required me to make a ton of money um, and work at a job that might not be a good fit for me. I had already a ton of student loans that I needed to pay back. I had 130K that grew to 150K just due to interest and being on the income-based repayment plan in those first lean years of the business. But my idea of like, maybe just maybe using my talents of mentorship, coaching, creativity, storytelling, editing, writing, maybe I can put those together, help people like I help myself and help my friends get into grad school. I think this can work. And once I got the help and mentorship I needed in my business, it worked really amazingly. We're ele- it's 11 years later now, and The Art of Applying is now the largest Black-owned graduate admissions consulting business. It's now the largest woman of color-owned graduate admissions consulting business. We and one of our clients were just featured in Fortune. And so I just feel so, so grateful that I had that faith in myself and also so grateful that I had those corporate internships where I was treated so well because I wasn't running away from abuse. I was running toward a vision that I felt I had to do. I love that story. I think sometimes I interview people who they chose the shiny corporate job or the high salary because maybe their parents had that expectation or they have society expectations on them. And then they later in life decide to finally leave that behind But it sounds like for you, you had like this inner wisdom or like this gut that was just really right on where you were like, this is not for me and I might as well start now, even though maybe it was unclear what your next step would be. Yeah, I was clear actually that I wanted to start the art of applying that in that summer where I was at Nestle, I was at a lunch, um, with one of my friends and I was just complaining about the, about corporate life. And I said, casually. Yeah. And I've got this conference call tonight with like 15 people who want to talk to me about getting into grad school because I made them all talk to me at the same time because I get hit up by so many people um, on Facebook or LinkedIn who are asking like, how did you get into Harvard with just a 620 GMAT being a black studies major being from a low income neighborhood? Like what? Like, how did you do it? And I like helping people, but I can't answer those same questions over and over again for free for people. And she said, Kanisha, that's your business that you need to start that as a business. And it was one of those clouds parting, angels singing, sunshine streaming on my face where I'm like, dry my tears. I wasn't actually crying, but just for dramatic effect, I like dry my tears. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, of course. Of course, this is my business. And I had a lot to learn about running an online business or a lifestyle business because, of course, I I did go to Harvard for business school. But at least back then, you didn't learn a lot about starting something from scratch with no investors, right? You learned how to run a multi-million dollar or even multi-billion dollar enterprise or how to run a part of it. Or you learn back then very little, but now much more. You learn how to 
start a tech startup and pitch for funding. But what about a business where you're just coaching people through a process and you don't need investors and you're not really an attractive, even if you, I didn't want investors, but even if you want investors, it's not really wildly scalable. Mm -hmm. It's not a tech business. It's what, you know, I call, and a lot of people call a lifestyle business, but Yeah, once I humbled myself enough to get the help that I needed, even though I had a Harvard MBA, everything changed. I went from year seven, I think I made, I think $275,000 in revenue. And then year, oh, that was year six, I think. Year seven was $575,000. And then year eight was a million dollars. I've since scaled back the business. So it's no longer a million dollar business. Our 12 month revenue is probably about 650K, but I actually make more money on a 650K business, at least at this point, than I did on a million dollar business because we got into the kind of that startup scaling mode where we just spending a lot of money growing. And it was cool and fun to say I have a million dollar business and to have like eight full time employees. But then my job became managing eight employees. And, uh, and that's eight full time employees, not to mention 20 to 30 contract consultants. For me, I'm like, why am I doing all this? I want to write and tell stories and be funny <laughs> like on camera and on stage. Why am I doing all this? And so now on a 600K business, my like taxable income is somewhere between 180 and 250K. The reason it's so widely varies is just based on how profitable we are that last very busy quarter of the year. And I'm like, okay, I would much rather have a smaller business, bring home more money, have more free time, be able to take the New York Times personal essay writing course I'm going to take, be able to take my tiny book course I'm going to take, be able to write, have that flexibility. So I've really found what I've called the the right size for my business. I call it joy sizing. When the corporate speak, they're like, oh, we didn't downsize, we right sized. And I think of it as joy sizing. So I'd love to have a million dollar business again, but it would have to be one where I still have that freedom and flexibility. Yeah. So it sounds like you were growing and you could have maybe kept going, but then it would have been taxing on your own time and life and you wouldn't be able to do the things you enjoy. Absolutely. And I also had to focus on my health. I was got really ill. I was just overworking. At that year for me, it was a very high octane year and way of running my business. I got diagnosed with a thyroid condition, then later got diagnosed with fibroids. I had to get a big surgery. And it was just like, I might have slipped into what I call over earning, which is where you're earning more money than you need to for your retirement needs, for your your not basic necessities, but even your luxury necessities, but where you're just earning more money and working more just because you can, but then not investing enough time in your health, your relationships, in your spiritual health and things like that. I definitely love making money. I would love to be fabulously wealthy and be able to like take my friends on all expenses paid luxury vacation. I would love to do stuff like that. And I that it does not matter to me more than having the freedom to go to a yoga class. <laughs> and the, not that I even do. I haven't been doing that, but I can. And so I don't want to say it's either or like, oh, you can only make millions of dollars or have freedom and flexibility. 
I'm saying that if I do have to choose between the two, after 150K, after 180K, like that is enough. That is more than enough money in a place like Austin, Texas. In a place like Austin, making 150K is the equivalent of making probably 290 in New York City or something. That's enough money. That's more than enough money. Yeah. What do you think people should keep in mind if they're thinking about doing what you did, which is maybe start an online business? Obviously, the the landscape now looks very different than it did in 2010 or 2011. But what would be your your tips or like what should people think through? Absolutely. So I actually have a podcast episode where I have a assessment for like, are you ready to do it full time? Because I think that most people should not start an online business as their full time thing. A, because if you can excel in corporate America, go get that money. Or if you can do rocket at a startup and get equity and possible and a possible exit, oh my goodness, go do that. So that's the first thing I just want to say is like, if you like corporate America or even the startup world where you've got equity, but they're also paying you, please do that and do the thing that you also love on the side. So if you're thinking about doing it full time, it's scaleyourjoy.com slash 11 is the episode and it's called the Lifestyle Entrepreneur Assessment Profile Leap. So the episode is called Take the Leap with Me and you it's a series of questions that's just like, are you ready to be a full-time entrepreneur. Now, that's what I would just say for them is like, take that assessment and see where you land. Most people land on the not yet. And then you can just use the questions that you answered no to as a checklist for like, oh, well, these are the things I need to get in place Mm -hmm. to be ready. And I feel extremely qualified to tell people do it or don't do it full time because I have been doing this full time for 11 years. As far as on the side, I would say my tips would be to just know that it's not too late. The world's not too crowded. I don't care if you want to be a health coach, life coach, stylist. I don't care if you want to sell earrings. I don't care if you want to teach people how to code, whatever it is you want to do. I promise you there is There are people in this world who need what you offer, who need the solution that you're offering, the encouragement, the coaching, the consulting, whatever it is that you're passionate about. Do not worry about all the other people you see who are doing it first or doing it better. No one is you, so they're not doing it like you would. Uh, I don't even care if you are a queer Latino from Alabama and there's some already some queer Latino from Alabama already doing what you want to do. I don't care. There could be two, mm-hmm. right? Don't there can be seven. Please do not think that there's like one slot for a certain type of person to do what you want to do. It's not too late. It's not like, oh, Kanisha started it back in the wild west of the internet. Believe me, it is still the wild west of the internet. The fact that life coaching is still an unregulated industry means that this is still very much the Wild West um, of possibility for people who want to start coaching and consulting businesses or their own small. Now, it is a little harder if you want to do something like start your own liquor brand or something like that. You may want to then look into getting investors and things like that. But if it's more like I want to be a weight loss coach or I want to be a weight gain coach for skinny dudes who are tired of feeling (laughs) too skinny or whatever, like know that it's not too late. And then another tip would be to surround yourself with people who share 
a similar goal. It doesn't have to be the exact same goal, but it does need to be people who are at a similar place in the journey as you. So I meet every other Tuesday for a year now with other women whose businesses are between 500K and a million dollars in revenue. So it's nice and specific so that we are all dealing with the same challenges or similar challenges. If I was in a group where I'm making 600K in my business, and then there's other people making 7 million in their business, they just have a different level of resources to approach their problems. And they also have different problems in their business. So I would say to surround yourself with people who who are at a similar level as you in the particular thing that you're going for. And it doesn't have to cost money. I did meet these women because we were all a part of a coaching program that we were paying for. That coaching program was about $300 a month, which to me, so easy to pay $300 a month. But for somebody just starting out in their business, $300 a month can be a lot of money, a lot of money. I would encourage people to If you can afford it, get business coaching. And in addition to business coaching, to be a part of an accountability group or what I like to call a goal friend group. So I call my friends who we work on our goals together. They're my goal friends. Mm -hmm. And that's actually what my next book is about is it's called the goal friend guide. And it tells the story of how without paying money, I have for different areas of my life that I had goals in, I create a goal friend group. It is often just one other person. Sometimes it's two or three other people, but I've achieved some amazing goals um, with my goal friends. Awesome. So my last question for you is tell us about your podcast and then what inspired you to start it and how people can find you online, where they can find you online if they want to work with you. Absolutely. So my podcast is called Scale Your Joy, and it is a podcast for high achievers who also have a lot of heart. So people who have gone to the Wellesley and Pomona Colleges and Harvards for college or maybe even for graduate school who have lots of career opportunities in front of them, probably even have one of those fancy, shiny corporate jobs, but also feel like I there's got to be something more than this or like I'm just putting so much of my time and talents towards making these rich people richer. Good. But I also want something that's all my own as well. And so it's a combination of stories, strategies, and frameworks for uh, crafting a life and a business that allows you to experience that self-expression, freedom, impact, and earn well. I feel like I've really been able to achieve that balance between earning well, having lots of free time, having a positive impact in the world, and being my true authentic self. And so my podcast is for people who are anywhere along that spectrum, who are looking to craft a life and an entrepreneurial journey that is authentic to them, where they're earning well, doing well, and 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 being their true selves. There's a, it's half the episodes are quite business focused where it's basically free business coaching for me. And then half the episodes are more around life and lifestyle. For any help with graduate school that you or someone might want, my company is The Art of Applying and that's theartofapplying.com. 
And then, of course, people are welcome to follow my entrepreneurial journey on LinkedIn. But yeah, if you're looking for me, you can always find me at theartofapplying.com or scaleyourjoy.com. For any of you who are like, "Mm, I'm interested in her book, kanisha.com is my personal website. And that actually will get you to anywhere you need to go. So lots of places to find me. Amazing. Well, Kanisha, thanks for being an example of what's possible for BIPOC women and and, in this entrepreneurship world. So thank you for your time and thank you for being you. Hey, are you thinking about changing careers? Then you need to head over to my website, ecmpodcast.com and sign up to get your free 20-page guide that I wrote with you in mind. I wrote this guide to help you change careers and get really clear on what it is that you want to do next. Career clarity is key to a career transition journey. All right, can't wait to hear what you think about it. Have a great week.